0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies and vibrant communities founded on the rule
1: of law. ELI has partnered with Beverage and Diamond to launch a new podcast series entitled Ground Truth. This podcast will explore trends in environmental justice, a movement dating back to the civil rights era. Environmental justice, also referred to as EJ, is defined by EPA as fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. EJ has gained new momentum in recent years, amplified by global focus on issues involving social justice, climate, and equity. In the first few weeks of the Biden-Harris administration, we have already seen an unprecedented EJ campaign platform develop into far-reaching executive actions. Even before the Biden-Harris campaign brought EJ to the federal spotlight, states were starting to implement ambitious, history-making, EJ-focused legislation, a trend that appears to be continuing into 2021. In today's episode of the ELI Beverage and Diamond Environmental Justice Ground Truth series, Julius Redd an environmental lawyer with a focus on environmental justice at Beverage and Diamond, speaks with New Jersey State Senator Troy Singleton and New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection Acting Commissioner Sean Law-Tourette. Senator Singleton represents parts of Burlington County, New Jersey, and was the primary sponsor of New Jersey's landmark 2020 environmental justice law. The senator has served since 2017 and previously served in the General Assembly. He has dedicated his life to public service at all levels through policy and government work. Acting Commissioner LaTourette has been with NJDEP since 2008. Governor Phil Murphy appointed him as the Acting Commissioner on January 16th of this year. Prior to this role, he served as the Chief Regulatory and Policy Advisor to then Commissioner Catherine McCabe. Acting Commissioner LaTourette has developed and led initiatives that prioritize EJ, facilitating greenhouse gas emissions reductions, climate change resilience and adaptation, renewable energy development, and water infrastructure enhancement. Today, we'll hear about New Jersey's recent landmark environmental justice law, which is arguably the most comprehensive environmental justice state law in the country. The group will discuss how Senate Bill 232 evolved over time, the process of working with stakeholders in developing and passing the legislation, and how this historic bill will be implemented.
0: My name is Julius Red i am an environmental litigation and compliance counseling attorney in beverage and diamonds washington dc office i will be your host for today's episode hello senator singleton thank you very much for being with us today thank you so much for having me additionally we will also be joined by acting commissioner of the new jersey department of environmental protection Sean LaTourette. Hello, Commissioner LaTourette. Thank you as well for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Julius, for, for having us and, and for your investment in this podcast series.
0: You're very welcome. I am very excited to have the two of you on today because you two are real leaders with respect to environmental justice. Today we will be discussing New Jersey's recent landmark environmental justice law, which was enacted in 2020. It is the most comprehensive environmental justice law in the country. We will discuss how the legislation evolved over time, the process of working with stakeholders in developing and passing the legislation, and how this law will be implemented. I would like to hear from both of you with respect to your journey to environmental justice. How did you come to focus on EJ in your respective careers? Why now? Commissioner LaTourette, let's start with you.
3: Thank you for that question.
2: You know I think about that phrase why now what is the urgency you know there's nothing uh particular about now I think the question is why not sooner why not more urgently with respect to my individual uh, journey uh, with respect to environmental justice you know I, I grew up in a in a poor community um but a but a white community nonetheless And it has always been apparent to me the environmental externalities borne by those who often have the least resources, the least voice, the least access to improving upon environmental conditions. And I think my, my eyes were open to that when I was in my late teens at 19. I had the The chance to work uh, with the the then Erin Brockovich uh, law firm and similar law firms here in New Jersey uh, organizing communities whose drinking water had become contaminated by petrochemicals. And it was so stark, the experience of low-income communities and minority communities, to my mind, with respect to the burden that they were bearing, often unbeknownst to them, communities serviced by potable drinking water wells who would have had no idea that a gas station nearby wasn't keeping up with uh, its requirements for maintaining underground storage tanks and so petrochemicals were leaching into the groundwater table and that's what they were feeding uh, their kids. and. That work in in organizing and helping people find their voices and find uh, the advocates that would champion their cause really opened my eyes to how much work there was to do in in this space. And it put me on a path to becoming an environmental lawyer uh, and then ultimately uh, to joining the Department of Environmental Protection and entering public service and, and now leading the agency. Uh, through what is a truly transformative time, uh, in no small part because of the Senator's work to advance this legislation that had languished uh, in our legislature for many years, and to further the promise of environmental justice through structural reorganization of my own agency, because to address what is a systemic
3: issue, we have to look at the systems
2: that perpetuate injustice.
0: Well, thank you for those remarks, Commissioner. That was a very powerful. And I think you hit on a, a, a key theme, I think right at the beginning with respect to low income communities that may be majority white. I mean, oftentimes when we think about environmental justice, a lot of times, like sometimes um, lower income communities that might be white or um, might not be communities of colors sort of don't necessarily come to our minds. But I think your personal story really highlights how those communities as well need to, to be empowered and they need voices and they need to be thought about as well uh, with respect to environmental justice issues. So. Thank you very much for that. Um, I want to turn to the uh, senator now. Same question to you, sir. How did you come to embrace environmental justice? What is your story? Like, why now? What is the urgency now? Well, that's a great question. I think, for me, it's less
4: of a journey. It was more of a way of life. Um, So before my family moved to New Jersey, when I was in my early teens, I grew up in uh, Philadelphia in a section of Philadelphia called Germantown, and Germantown is no different than parts of the city of Camden in New Jersey or Newark or Trenton, um, former you know urban epicenters of industry um, that has since seen better days. And for me, before I knew what environmental justice was, I knew its impact in my life, having seen members of my family affected with asthma and COPD, and looking almost like an area, almost like a heat map in our particular area, and realizing that if you link that to certain facilities that were in our geographical area, it almost was a direct correlation to see, look at some of the uh, health conditions that not just members of my family, but others in our community had faced, and the legislative journey um, to sort of bring this to fruition It started long before I was even in the legislature. You know, this this path that this legislation was on was started in March of 2008, um, which predates my time of service in in state government. And as we think about this long journey, it was the advocates uh, who stayed committed um, throughout that time of constantly pushing and pushing and pushing. And I often say that uh, legislation sometimes has its season, and when its season is right, um, usually action takes place. And we all know how tumultuous 2020 was for us. And after years of waiting, I think the momentum that was created by the heinous uh, death of George Floyd and the actions we saw with Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and others that the newspapers don't even write about, and it and it led to this conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement, and that conversation, while it was initially so focused on social justice and policing, I think in order for us to be true to those words, we have to make sure that our public policy is as inclusive in every aspect, in education, in economic, and yes, even in environmental policy, to be reflective that our words may say one thing, but our deeds have to match it. And and I think that pivotal moment in our nation's history gave us the momentum that was necessary to be able to see a proposal that had languished frankly since March of 2008 to see its opportunity to, to finally truly be heard. I um, mean it had fits and starts along the way but to truly be heard and, and advance And I think once we got that momentum behind us and and with the support of the community you know being there all along the way, And and Governor Murphy, uh, Phil Murphy, putting his impetus on this, saying this is something that is important to him. I think it all came together. And the urgency of the moment was felt by my colleagues in the legislature. It was felt by the community that this time was going to be different. And and frankly, it was. And we were successful in getting it done.
0: Where I want to uh, talk about next is sort of your role in. Getting the legislation, sort of advancing the legislation from where it was when you got into the legislature. You mentioned that it sort of was languishing since March of 2008. So I'm really interested in hearing about how you took the legislation that that uh, you found and how you shepherded to get introduced uh, and and, and evolve into S 232. One of the things that um, sort of following this legislation from afar that really struck me was, I believe it was on Juneteenth in uh, last year, Governor Phil Murphy came out and publicly supported the legislation. And I believe that it was it was that was at a time when the legislation hadn't yet passed both houses of, this, of the uh, state legislature. So that sort of struck me as something that doesn't usually happen, but at the same time, I think that you're spot on, given the heinous acts that, with the murder of George Floyd and the larger social justice movement that we saw throughout 2020, sort of amplified by the uh, coronavirus ravishing uh, black and brown communities. I think it sort of all came together. It was almost a perfect storm, unfortunately. It took those events for for to get this momentum behind such legislation, but just talk for a minute about um how how you shepherded from the state it was in in 20 uh in, in march 2008 to, to to it coming to become legislation.
4: well you know i i i sort of blanched a little bit at this idea of me alone shepherding it and it's not a, uh i'm not it's not a critique of the question it is because there was just so many of us who were committed to getting this done and you pointed out uh, an interesting fact, that, and I think it's something that I, I, I want folks to, to really let sink in. This bill sat around from March 6th of 2008, and there have been fits and starts. So let me be clear. I joined this legislation in 2014. But from March 6th to 2008 until effectively uh, June of 2020, there were not really a lot of activity that was moving this forward. Now, if you think about that in 12 years, we really could not get this going in, in earnest. And then from June of 2020, right, this legislation was signed into law in September of 2020, three months later. And and, and I point that out because of how this process works when the right momentum is given to it and the right push is given to it and when you have a commitment from the governor when you have a commitment from the senate president you have a commitment from the house speaker the assembly speaker saying we're going to get this done it, it almost makes what kept it from happening you, you sort of can't really wrap your brain around you just sit there and be like all right this wave is going and i'm going to be a, a part of it to get us to the finish line and, and when it came to the conversation around shepherding this, I think what all of us as advocates and proponents did was we, we really allowed people to once again see the world that so many of our fellow New Jerseyans were living in. And because we had their attention because of the environment, um, no pun intended, nationally had brought their attention to communities of color, folks could no longer just uh, uh, excuse their glance. They couldn't just ride down the highway and not look over and see the effects that it was having on their fellow New Jerseyans. And and thankfully, the legislature and the governor said enough is enough and we're going to make a change. And then that is how it was shepherded. It was shepherded because the the environment made it so and a commitment of leadership made it so that we were not going to allow another year to go by without it having action. And and I I just really want to punctuate and amplify that point. June of 2020, and the bill was signed in September of 2020. Three months later, after at that time, 12 years of it languishing. It is astonishing. It is a commitment for everyone who kept believing and refused to give up on it.
0: No, you, You're absolutely right. Um, that is sort of extremely fast timeline for a a ability to go from a legislature to pass both houses and then get signed by the governor but to your point uh senator you were not the only one who uh played a role in getting this legislation uh passed and i understand that commissioner walterette also played a leading role in helping to uh get all the stakeholders on board and and get this legislation passed. Talk to us a little bit about your role and and how you were instrumental in helping to get this legislation passed, uh, Commissioner Law Thanks
2: for that question, Julius. First of all, I I couldn't disagree with a single word or sentiment uh, that the Senator just shared. There is not a doubt, not a question that the confluence of events that the pandemic laying bare the disproportionate impact that minority communities in particular have experienced are so painfully correlated with the areas we know to suffer environmental injustice. And then with the outcry in the streets, For social justice, that confluence of events motivated everyone to action. There's no doubt. But at the same time, I view, in some ways, the experience of this bill to be a lesson in doing the hard work, even when you're not certain that that work is going to pay off in the end. As the Senator said, the bill had been sitting since 2008. It's not the same bill uh, that it was in 2008. And so what the lesson I take away is that working with your constituencies, working uh, concertedly as between members of the legislature, uh, the administration, the governor's immediate office, uh, the the Department of Environmental Protection that I lead, the work we did on the front end is not uh, readily apparent from the the speed that you see the bill being uh, supported by Governor Murphy uh, in June of 2020, and then ultimately signed in September of 2020. I'm not sure if the senator remembers. Uh, our first meeting, um, I had just joined pub, uh, joined the administration, September of 2018. And the very first meeting that I took was with the senator on this bill. And there was a full uh, a bunch of folks uh, from DEP around the table uh, suggesting um, on the original bill, or, or what was the bill at that time, uh, some of... Uh, the the difficulties with it. And that reaction that the senator experienced in that room on that day was demonstrative of the structures that we have to change in order to further that promise of environmental justice. That And, and what I mean by that is that some folks who have deep experience in environmental law in that room could only see the barriers and we had to work deeply within the programs of an environmental agency at Julius as you know an environmental agency has all these different media programs that when they're confronted with the notion of cumulative impacts they shy away they back up because of the difficulty in in assessing and in determining when uh an impact is causal and so we had to work internally in order to, to move the needle and propose back to the Senator language that, that we believed could move the initiative, that could be implementable and withstand the challenges uh, that were presented during the negotiation process and the challenges that are certain to come as we act upon this law for that very reason. So we had to change ourselves a bit in the process and and become one with the senator's
3: passion for the issue.
0: That that insight that you just provided, Commissioner, is absolutely invaluable. And hearing your perspective, and I agree with you 100 percent, the notion of cumulative impacts to me is really where environmental justice, really gains importance. Looking at different facilities or environmental impacts in isolation can really only tell you so much. But once you look at the total burden that a community faces, you really start to gain an appreciation of how difficult life might be for those residents. We heard from the Senator that it took 12 years for this bill to finally get enacted, and now the now the, that the harder work of getting the turning the bill into a into a law has been completed, is now on the uh, the, the a DEP to implement the legislation and uh, promulgate the implementing regulations. So, talk to us about what that process looks like. And, and and sort of what lies ahead and how that process is going.
2: Sure, sure, I'm happy to to share uh, that that process and, and where we stand. And Julius, as you know from your practice, you know if you have a, a six page law like this one, uh, that the implementing force of the regulations is an order of magnitude larger. Just looking at the stacks of paper, right. Because the way that environmental law is structured uh, is often such that the that the that the bill, the now law, uh, puts forward uh, the the imperative and provides the authority and the how of getting to the outcomes that the bill now law requires are incredibly complex you you mentioned just before cumulative impacts and one of the things that has long i think eluded the environmental regulatory community and practitioners in litigation is the notion of that causal relationship at what point is an addition of a pollutant too much to bear Because of the law, we're now forced to tangle with that question. And it's a really, really hard question. Because the structure of environmental law over the last 50 years has specifically and intentionally avoided it. We look only at what one piece of pollution control equipment on particular facilities can achieve From a technological perspective.
3: We do not look and never have at what
2: a collection of facilities means for any one individual area and what is the experience of the community that hosts these facilities independent of the facilities themselves. What are their baseline conditions? Because We have to be honest that it's not just facilities that have pollution potential that cause the environmental burden upon a community. We all cause that burden together. It's what we do to our neighbors by virtue of our very existence. The fact that our low and moderate income communities, minority communities in particular, are bisected by every mode of transportation. That's not an error. Some could say the result of redlining, and that's, that's accurate. So this law asks us to look at the baseline condition
3: in a community, and then look at how an additional facility of certain types
2: when added to that community, could cause a disproportionate environmental or public health burden upon that community. So what do we have to do? We have to determine what environmental stressors we're even gonna look at. So far right now, uh, in our rulemaking process, we have a list of 40. And then we need to determine the data sources for those 40 stressors, and we may not end up with 40 at the end of rulemaking. So we have to look at the, the data that from which we can distill that information we have to look at the veracity of that data and its scalability these are really complex issues that no environmental law has ever attempted and we can do it we have the information we have the expertise we are developing the data analytical tools and the mapping that will support this but for the the main criteria of this legislation we have to rule make around the further definition of facilities around the types of of permits that those facilities uh, that, that would make those facilities subject to the law we have to rule make around the types of stressors to be evaluated how those stressors importantly are analyzed vis-a-vis one another because they're not all created equal and then how you how you then compare those stressors that exist in the community to stressors that a facility uh, could, could potentially add. And then in addition to that, we have to rule-make around process. One of the changes in this uh, legislation that you would see from the 2008 to the 2020 version is the introduction of the notion of an environmental justice impact statement, right? We all know that an environmental justice, uh, uh, that we all know that an environmental impact statement uh, in the way that they are historically done we don't look at cumulative impacts from a public health perspective, not really. Right? And we knew that we needed to create the rubric of presenting that information to the agency so as to help the agency make an informed decision. So we've got to put together the confines of what that looks like. And then most, in, most importantly, how we engage the public. We're talking about enhanced public participation, requirement of public hearings, all of those issues, uh, we are rulemaking on. We've held stakeholder sessions on about half of them. Uh, we will continue with stakeholder sessions on the next half over the course of the next several months, with the goal of proposing a regulation uh, by the third quarter of this year. Uh, which, in rulemaking timeline, uh, under a year to propose a rule in the environmental world from the time a bill is passed is a is a is a breakneck pace, and we're going to keep moving at that pace to get this. Uh, across the line and have rules that are implementable.
0: Commissioner really moving at at a breakneck pace. And what I think is what's really exciting about this legislation is I think in the rulemaking that will be promulgated pursuant to it, I think this legislation really has a potential to be a model for other jurisdictions who are also grappling with similar issues and how they might um enact environmental justice legislation and we are already starting to see in various jurisdictions that legislation is starting to be introduced that is modeled after this uh historic ej legislation looking into your crystal ball in five years in 10 years when you're no longer senator but you're probably the governor of new jersey and commissioner you're no longer the, the dp commissioner but you are the epa administrator how will we define success what how how will we know that this legislation has been successful what what metrics or what, what markers are are the two of you looking to 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 really say that this legislation was successful and i'm going to start with you um, center wow that's a that's a great
4: question um i will tell you it will it will be successful to me when when people uh, regardless of their zip code uh income or race are, are breathing fresh air and drinking clean water and living free of toxic pollutants we we will all know it's a success when when poor urban minority residents in our state and around our country, because I believe what you said is right. We want this to be a template that others use all across the country to, to make change. When, when all of those folks, the folks that, you know, sometimes, you know, government and politics forgets because they don't have the loudest voice and they're not well healed to sit at the table. But when, when all of those people, when all of those voices are heard and Folks are no longer overburdened with toxic facilities in their neighborhood. To me, that that'll mean that we we did something uh, pretty pretty great,
3: and and for that, I will call that a success.
0: I, I agree. If if we're able to achieve that here, I think this will be a resounding success. Same question t- to you, Commissioner. How, how how would you define success?
2: So, first of all, we're success will be achieving exactly what the Senator uh, just just explained, and we will. for me, the the question of success is, how much bigger
3: can we take it? Because we have an opportunity to make deep structural systemic change as Critically important as this
2: piece of law is. I want to put in perspective that it addresses eight types of facilities. Just eight. The way that we can utilize the experience of this bill, the the spirit behind it, the passion to do good work, to improve the lives of our fellow residents here in New Jersey, and I hope that it becomes a national model and we can say across the country. The, the way to really achieve success, to my mind, is to let this guide us to make greater degrees of change. And I go back, Julius, to what, what you said at the outset about the definition of environmental justice fair treatment, meaningful involvement.
3: I don't think that that definition
2: does our communities justice. When we often think about environmental justice as legal professionals, as regulators, when we look at this bill and we look at the rules that DEP will make to implement it, All of that is about how we reduce future burden. So the question remains, what are we doing about the burden that
3: is there? And something that EJ
2: can often leave out, how do we change our focus from the reduction of environmental burden to the creation of greater environmental benefit? And one of the things that we are working on to further that, and I'm eager to talk to my new uh, colleagues on the federal level about, is how we are assessing every single media program in DEP to look at ways that we can imbue principles of environmental justice in all the places that the law doesn't reach. The law doesn't reach, for example, minor source air pollution permits, but there is a way that we, as regulators, could adapt our policy and our practice to deliver a greater degree of environmental justice when we do that work. And the same is true when we're issuing grants for parks or for water infrastructure. We need to do all of that work through an equity lens. Environmental justice, from our perspective in New Jersey, it is not another program that we run. It is the lens through which we see everything we do.
0: I thought this was an excellent conversation and I I learned a whole lot in the the couple of minutes that we spent together here this evening thank you very much senator singleton any last words before we end this episode first
4: of all i just want to thank you guys uh for for having me um in this conversation with our commissioner it is critically important um and it's my hope that we can replicate this all across the country and see a federal standard uh be put in place but thank you uh so much for this opportunity to discuss this important law.
2: Senator, just one quick uh, moment on that. And Julius, you, uh, you may be interested in this uh, as well. Uh, today, I attended the uh, Environmental Council of the States meeting. That's where all 50 secretaries or commissioners of the state's uh, environmental departments get together. And our keynote was the newly uh, uh, confirmed EPA administrator, uh, Michael Regan, and Senator, he called us out directly. He called out New Jersey for our commitment to environmental justice and uh, the the law uh, that that you made sure was passed. And uh, I hope you don't mind that I pledge to him our support to to make it uh, a broader initiative that they could uh, mirror on the federal level.
0: Well, that is certainly exciting news, Commissioner, and and welcome news. Um, and just confirms my uh, sentiment that I expressed uh, earlier that I think we have leaders now on the federal level who are aligned in thinking with respect to the urgency and the importance of environmental justice and looking to New Jersey as a model. I think that we have the template of how to really fulfill the promise as you described it, uh, Commissioner LaTourette of environmental justice, both in the state of New Jersey and on the federal level. So I want to wish to thank you both for your time. Um, that's at wraps, that concludes this episode of Ground Truth. Please stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing environmental justice initiatives in other states as well. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.